The interview with BJNN is brought to you by BizEvents, connecting the Central New York business community through events. I'm Marnie Nasher, President of the Business Journal News Network, and I'd like to welcome Dave Nunning, Chairman and CEO of VIP Structures. VIP Structures is an integrated design-build firm established in 1975. Over the years, they have expanded to include VIP Architectural Associates, VIP Development Associates, and IPD Engineering. VIP's various divisions are all consistently among the top firms in their fields in our annual Book of List rankings. You may know VIP through some of the recent high-profile projects such as the Pike and the upcoming post-standard building transformation. So welcome, Dave. Thanks. Tell me, let's start talking about you a little bit. Um, you're very well known in the community, but uh, maybe not everybody knows a little bit about your background. Share with us where you grew up and where you went to school. All right, well, I grew up in Walsley, Massachusetts, went to Cornell and graduated in 1975. And um, my wife, Judy, and I got married right after graduation at her fraternity house, which was fun. Um, house, yes. Moved up here. She had a, um, a couple of years to finish up at Syracuse University, and um, so I applied for a couple of jobs here. And was actually the first employee of VIP structures that had been put together corporately, but they didn't have anybody working for them. I was their first employee, and a couple of years later, ultimately, kind of rose through the ranks and assumed their debts is probably the most accurate uh, description of taking over the company. That's okay. Yeah, that's great. Like what I may mean. have created those tests, but I still. But that's okay. Those. I mean, well, <laughs> and so you spent your time at Cornell. That was for you received your architecture degree. Yep, I have a bachelor of architecture. Okay, and you were named Executive of the Year. I have to read this at the first Upstate Minority Economic Alliance Community Engagement Awards. So, how has your commitment to working with minorities helped VIP structures? Well, we've been here for. 42 years now, 43 years. Um, and this town has been incredibly welcoming. Uh, they, they welcomed us with open arms. They gave us credit when they had no business giving us credit. We owed summer for suppliers for as much as 18 months for concrete years, years and years ago. So um, I'm not sure it would have been easy to start a business in other towns. So Syracuse has been very opening, open to us. We owe it an awful lot. And um, obviously we have issues with poverty in town and um, we have historically done an awful lot of projects where there may be women and minority business requirements um, within the business, within the projects themselves where um, certain state funding will have certain requirements. Um, where we got really involved, where it started to make a difference was um, with the Price Right project on the south side. So we were approached by A. Elaine and Reggie Siegler from the Urban Jobs Task Force. Um, and Rob Simpson, who set up the meeting, really they wanted to meet with us to see if there's anything we could do um, to help hire some folks from our most impoverished zip codes and from, from our south side of Syracuse area. Um, and it was an interesting meeting because, frankly, nobody had ever sat down with them and talked to them. So it was literally a matter of sitting down, listening to have what, to what they had to say, seeing if there was something we could do to try and work with them a bit. Um, they had some things they wanted us to do, we couldn't quite get to, especially on a voluntary basis on a project that were priced. Um, but we came to a meeting of the minds and we came up with a voluntary proposal to try and hire us. Uh, we were trying to, our target was 30 people, 30% of the folks on the jobs. 
um, would be from the impoverished zip codes and from the south side and, and minority employees. And so um, rather than going through the conventional route of hiring minority contractors or women-owned businesses, uh, we really felt that boots on the ground, people from the neighborhood working at the job were really a much better tactic um, for what we're looking to do. So and they were more invested or? They were more invested when you went by the job site. It looked like it was being built of the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, by the neighborhood. Um, just a whole different world. Um, clearly the grocery store on the south side was a huge deal to have a grocery store on the south side. It needed to be of the community. We were not of the community. We had done work with Price Rate before, so we knew them. And so um, it was a natural for us to do the project. Um, so we went to our subcontractors, and again, we had already been awarded the project, and they had already been awarded, our subs had also been awarded the project before, and asked them if they could do their best um, to hire as many people from the local area and, and minorities as possible. And most of our subcontractors, the very few sections, everybody really jumped through hoops to see what they could do. We had, a, we had a union electrician who I think had the only two or three minorities in the union that the union would allow him to use on the job. So he really went out of his way to do that. We had a terrific plumbing subcontractor who, who is a minority, who, is, who hires 100% minorities, um, who worked on the job. So with the help of Reggie Siegler, who really um, worked for Syracuse Housing Authority, and Ricky Brown certainly helped, but we and A.E. Lane helped us really in sourcing people to work for the project, sourcing subcontractors. So, so it was a positive experience. It's a great experience. It was really a matter of making it front of mind. Uh, it was a matter of thinking about it. It wasn't, um, I mean, it took some more time. Didn't didn't necessarily cost anymore. It was just a matter of trying to figure it out. So Yumiya, uh, we got to know um, a number of minority contractors, a number of people in the minority community working on that, and um, Yumiya chose to Yumiya chose to award us the executive of the year award. So well, we think well it's deserved. Yumiya, that's what I should have said in the beginning. Because <laughs> that's a mouthful. Well, it's great. I heard it was a great event and had a great oh, wonderful. wonderful attendance. I think it'll be every year, so you have to come next year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so can you explain what makes some of those projects economically feasible? Um, and could they happen with the pilot agreements and other tax arrangements that we typically see? You know, it's an interesting thing because every time somebody applies for a pilot or help from SIDO or um, help from sales tax, it always hits the newspaper as all that they're being given as a, as a giveaway. So it's always an interesting discussion. I think that what people need to understand is if you take a property, and maybe the post standard is a, is a good look in, in round numbers, purchase the building for about $4 million. So it's being taxed, uh, unfortunately it's being taxed about $6 million. Hopefully they'll fix that soon. But it, it is whatever the basis, the basic taxes are right now on the property. Yeah, that's what it's worth unimproved. Um, so a developer comes in and he's going to put a whole bunch of money into the building. Say they're going to put 20 or $30 million into the building of their own money to, um, to take it from a $4 million base or $4 million value to maybe a $25 million or a $30 million value. Um, and it's the developer's money, bank's money, investor's money to make that all happen. When you go to SIDA, for instance, when we're talking about the city, um, you can be induced uh, under the IDA inducement, which gives you a couple of things. It allows you to have your mortgage recording fee um, waived so that it's about a 1% fee normally to record a mortgage on a property. But it costs you about a 1% side of fee to do that. So those two really wash out. Really wash out. Although I have heard um, people talk about having been you know, given this free, uh, uh, waiving the cost of the mortgage recording fee, forgetting that it costs you the same amount to get the same <laughs> fee. Um, 
The bigger issue on the actual construction of it is that you can get the sales tax waived on the building of the project. So sales tax at an 8% rate in the county is worth about 2%, 2 and a quarter percent of the total project. So on a $20 million project, for instance, sales tax could be worth as much as $500,000, if my math is right, um, for putting the project together. So there is a savings on sales tax. Just bear in mind that you had a $4 million piece of property that was right. unoccupied, the contractor is putting in $20 million, that $500,000 in sales tax that's generated would not have happened had they not come in and done the project. So to say that it's giving back something, it would not have been created had the project not happened. So you started at zero, you would have paid a bunch of sales tax if you'd gone there waiving what you would have paid. So it certainly helped. Um, the other piece, the pilot piece, what a pilot does is the pilot says that whatever taxes you're paying now for a certain period of time, typically eight years and then it increases, we're gonna leave the taxes the same. We're not gonna reduce them. You're gonna pay the same taxes you're paying now, other than when the tax rate goes up, you actually go up a little bit. But essentially you're paying the same taxes now for eight years, at which point they'll start to go up and they'll eventually catch up if you have a $25 million value. Eventually your $4 million project will be taxed at 25 million. So, um, all it is is it's a deferral of that increase in property taxes. Okay. And it typically helps a developer because the first few years of a project are by far the most difficult to get off the ground. Risk is. They're not, nobody is, the city is not giving up taxes they're getting now. They are just saying, we will slow down our collection of new taxes on your new value, which you created with your new dollars, um, for a period of time until it catches up. So. Again, it's tough when you phrase things like sales tax as a giveaway, the taxes wouldn't have existed had you not done the project, and you talk about the savings that a pilot gives you in taxable rate um, as being a giveaway when it wouldn't have existed had you not done the project, but that's kind of the political climate we're in. Right. Yes, there are some, I will certainly say that three vending machines does not constitute a commercial <laughs> portion of a building if you've been following the recent news. And so there's, you know, Laws, unfortunately, have bad actors that try and get away with things, but that's life. So we're hearing uh, from businesses, from business people that downtown Syracuse is running out of old buildings to repurpose. Um, are you seeing that? Well, I think there's still some stock. I, you know, the bigger question is, uh, the big advantage of old buildings is that historic tax credits have really given a kickstart to downtown Syracuse. There, is, there are historic tax credits available on designated buildings that can cover as much as 25% of the cost of a renovation. So if you can get 75% of the way there with private funds, they can get you to the top with the tax credits. And those are very much in question as to how much longer they're gonna go. They, we didn't know until November of last year whether they were gonna be available for this coming year. It's still unclear how much New York State's gonna have those. So they've been a significant help in getting things going. By the same token, um, a lot of buildings have been bought up by out-of-towners that, you know, it's easy to look at Syracuse and see a building that's selling for 20 or $30 a square foot and say, how can I, how right. can I fail? I, right. you know, if, I, if I could buy a building for 20 or $30 in New York City, I'd be uh, a millionaire. Well, let me tell you the ways you can fail in, in Syracuse. But, so yes, people are buying them up. The prices, we're seeing prices as high as maybe $80 a square foot on an unimproved historic building. Um, as an example, we bought the post standard for $13 a square foot. We bought the pipe block for you know, under $10 a square foot. That's where prices really need to be to make it work. So although people are buying them and the stock is starting to disappear a little bit, there's still some left. They're just, we have great character and we have great buildings to fill in. 
your village group comes up. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So there's still there's still more out there. I think there's more out there. The concern is, you know, buying them at a fair cost. Right. Um, I think some of the early purchasers, the purchasers that thought they were going to make a killing, are realizing what it costs. So right. they'll, they'll recycle over time. So let's let's change the topic a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about family. Um, I understand you are a family-owned business. You have two of your daughters, Meg and Kate, working in the business. Um, can you share with us what the roles are currently? Sure. So, um, and I'm going to get the times wrong, but Kate came to work for us six or seven years ago. She went to um, graduated from Syracuse University uh, with her architectural degree. She's a licensed architect. Um, she, as of three years ago, has been the owner of the majority of the interest on in our architectural firm. Um, so she is, it is a woman-owned business on the, on the architectural side. Um, so she's president of architecture. Meg uh, Tidd is uh, our chief marketing officer. Meg came to us three years ago um, and has really built up our marketing department to where it's super solid. She's doing a great job. And the two of them well within a year or two be co-CEOs as I step toward chairman and out of my CEO position. So, so before I ask that, I was, that was one of my questions. Um, was, was that always the plan no, for no. Meg and Kate to come into the business? No, not at all. I, and I, I started, you know, when I started in 1975, I was a kid with no other assets. Frankly, I'd never had a real job other than summer jobs. So. Um, <laughs> but it was something I enjoyed doing, something I wanted to do. I had no inkling until at least 10 years ago that anybody had any interest in coming. And frankly, that was never the plan. It was always a business I wanted to run. I have partners in it that I've taken it over time. And, I've enjoyed it. So it was never intended to be a family business. Um, and it's, it was a surprise when initially Kate and then also, or yeah, initially Kate and then also Meg wanted to be a part of it. So it's been interesting. I'm sure. I'm sure it's very interesting having two daughters in the business. It's actually, it's great. So is there, so you have said that there is some kind of succession plan in the works yes. or it's going to be created. Well, we're working through, you know, what should the business look like, what should the actual corporate model look like when we're done with it. We are um, both professional firms, architecture, engineering, and non-professional firms on construction development, so there's some limitations as to who can own what and all that and how that all works out. But um, no, we're working our way through that. And we also have a, we have a total senior leadership team of nine people. Um, and other than the three of us, there's six others who are all enormously capable who will uh, stay with the business, I'm sure, all the way through. So I rely on lots of very, very smart people. Well, that's a great leader, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, we're a lucky leader. Well, so any piece of advice to other family businesses out there, regardless of the industry in which they're in, as you continue with this succession process? You know, I think we spent a lot of time very early on with um, some outside counselor help. I mean, how do you see your sister as other than the six-year-old that was pulling her hair? You know, how do you deal with the fact that you're in business together and you're also siblings? Um, how do I deal with them as super capable young women running their portions of the business, not as daughters? So really, I, I think it's a matter of you need somebody to help you do that a little bit. You need somebody Some to, from the outside. Somebody from the outside objective. to work with you, to um, look at things dispassionately. And so we've said. I think we've had three or four different strategic planning folks work with us over the last six or seven years as we work to get it right. And then you need to hit the things that might be an issue on the head. You know, where will the, who will have decision-making capabilities in what circumstances 
to the extent you can, before they're vested, how do you try and resolve the issues that could really become big issues when when uh, earnings are involved and all that other stuff? So preparation, preparation, preparation. The more you can do. And retesting and having outsiders help us. And we'll still get it, you know, partly wrong as everybody does. Yeah, right. And talk. You know, the, the two of them have coffee every, they get together specifically out of the office for an hour every week just to go That's really important. Them, so. That's great, and and thank you for sharing that. Not everybody likes to talk about family businesses, the the succession of it, and what's happening behind the scenes. So I think people will feel a little bit more comfortable when they start the process. And actually, I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, thanks to Dave Nutting for joining us, and keep an eye out at our website cnybj.com for more updates on our upcoming videos. Thank you.